Genesis chapter 9, and um, we're going to start reading in verse 18, but I have a joke for you. It's a good one. <clears throat> no, this is a good one. Um, actually, I have two. There was a rich man who was trying to find his daughter a birthday gift when he saw a poor man with a beautiful white horse. He told the man he would give him $500 for the horse. The poor man replied, I don't know, mister. It don't look so good. And he walked away. The next day, the rich man came back and offered the poor man $1,000 for the horse. And the poor man said, I don't know, mister. It don't look so good. On the third day, the rich man offered the poor man $2,000 for the horse. And he wouldn't take no for an answer. The poor man agreed and the rich man took the horse home. The rich man's daughter loved her present. She climbed onto the horse and he galloped fast straight into a tree. The rich man rushed back over to the poor man's house demanding an explanation for the horse's blindness. The poor man replied, I told you it don't look so good. <laughs> It's a matter of interpretation. And this one, since some of you are already thinking about diets, after starting a new diet, I altered my drive to work to avoid passing my favorite bakery. But this morning, I accidentally drove by the bakery, and as I approached, there in the window were a host of goodies. I felt this was no accident, so I prayed, Lord, it's up to you. If you want me to have any of those delicious goodies, please create a parking space for me directly in front of the bakery. And sure enough, on the eighth time around the block, there it was. It was God, and God is good. <laughs> okay, I hope we don't have to go around eight times, all right? <laughs> Genesis chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the boat with their father were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. From these three sons of Noah came all the people who now populate the earth. After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground and he planted a vineyard. One day he drank some wine he had made and he became drunk and lay naked inside his tent. This is getting deep now in Genesis. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders, and backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see him naked. When Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. Then Noah said, may the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed, and may Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth. May Japheth share the prosperity of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Noah lived another 350 years after the great flood. 
He lived 950 years, and then he died. Turn to somebody and say, are you in for a blessing or a curse? Go ahead and have a seat. I want to tell you real quickly a, a story about Annie. She's, uh, I've known her for many, many years, and um, she's actually, uh, you know, what I would consider an angel in the way that uh, years ago, this was um, over 26 years ago when my husband and I first moved up here, we came to a point, we had lived here for about, I don't know, maybe three or four months, and we had absolutely nothing to eat. And I know some of you have already heard this story, but... We had nothing. I was making uh, ketchup soup for my son. It was, we were in some hard times. And um, anybody ever had ketchup soup? It ain't that bad. <laughs> my son's still alive today. He survived. But um, it, was, it was just a really, really hard time. And uh, my husband's faith was so large and so big and so huge in comparison to mine, which was very small and very, very teeny tiny. And um, so one of the things that I did at that time, my son was crying and he said, I don't want this soup. He was, you know, he was already two, but he could verbally uh, tell me what he liked and didn't like. And he was pushed it away. I don't want this. I want food. And, um, and so that only served to get me angry, not at him. But I was angry, I guess, number one, at God. But who did I take it out on? My husband. I went to him, and I started telling him that there was no food on the table, and Esteban was crying, and I was hungry, and I was tired, and, you know, just went on and on and on. And, on. and my husband, being the man of God that he was, looked at me, and he goes, I'll be right back. I'm going to go pray. And I was like, Ah! I was ready to just uh, scream. <laughs> anyway, he went into his office and he began praying. And while he was praying, I was frustrated. I was mad. Esteban was crying. Uh, it was just one of those days. And uh, it was still morning. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning. And then I got a knock on the door. And, um, and I went to the door and there was this woman that I had never seen before in my life. And she said, is this Victory Outreach? And I said, yeah. And she goes, I'll be right back. And I was like, and then I, I went to go get my husband. And I said, there's a lady here. I don't know what she wants. She said, you're going to come right back. And he's like, well, what does she want? I don't know. He goes, okay, well, just leave me alone. I'm, I'm praying. And so I went back to the door when she came back, she came back with two other women, and they were holding bags of groceries. And they came in with grocery bag after grocery bag after grocery bag. They filled up my counter. They filled up the floor. And, and I, I had never met these women before. I didn't even know who they were. And, and, and uh, I, I, it was almost in my mind, I'm like, I'm thinking, are you guys angels or what? And I ran to go get my husband, and all he did was, I told you, you know, <laughs> I told you. And, uh, but that, that little um, incident, the Lord used Annie and two of her friends to just speak so loudly to me 
to remind me that God was going to take care of me, that God was going to, you know, sustain and, and, and just cover us and that we were in the right place. Because, you know, when you start going through hard times, don't you start thinking, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe this is the wrong place. Maybe this is the wrong city. Maybe this is the wrong time. Maybe I should go get a job. Maybe. And we start thinking of all the things that we're supposed to do because it's not working out the way we thought. And God used Annie and, and her two friends to just remind me that we were in the right place, in the right city, at the right time, uh, with the right husband and the right children and the right everybody. And I just needed to get myself in alignment to where God wanted me to be. So that's Annie's testimony, and I thank you, Annie. I haven't seen you in such a long time, but thank you. Okay, this portion of scripture is um, it's the beginning of a whole lot of things that we're going to be talking about in Genesis. In the Word of God, we see the mistakes of even the greatest of all heroes. Today, we have the story of Noah, a man who had found grace in the eyes of God, and now we see him making a mistake. This incident took place years after the great flood, probably several decades, maybe 10, 20, 30 years later because of the fact that the Bible says that he had time to plant a vineyard. He had time to allow it to grow. And to grow a vineyard takes about three to five years. There was time to harvest a crop, time to gather it, time to get the juice out of the grapes, time to allow it to ferment into wine. So there's a whole long time that is going on here. And when Noah and his three sons left the ark, the sons had no children at that time. Canaan was now the fourth son of Ham, and he was already old enough to apparently have chosen to live an ungodly life. And he was probably also an adult because when Noah put a curse, he put a curse on Canaan. And you don't put a curse on a child. You correct them and you teach them, but you don't curse them. And so biblically, he had to have been an adult. So there's four things that we're going to be talking about here. We're going to be talking about the drunkenness of Noah, the strange act of his son Ham, the parental honor that was shown by Shem and Japheth, and then the cursing of Canaan, Noah's grandson. So first we're going to talk about Noah's drunkenness. It's difficult. Now, this is really something because I know that there's a lot of, you know, even Christians today are like, well, why can't we drink? I'm going to show you today, biblically. It's difficult to know what to make of the drunkenness of Noah. There have been some scholars that suggest that fermentation had never taken place before the earth because the conditions had changed after the flood. So there was never any fermentation. Noah didn't know what was going to happen to him after he bottled up the juice. So that's why he drank so much wine, and that's why he explains why he got drunk. Now, there might be something to this, but we really don't know. It could have been an act of innocence, like, I didn't know it was going to ferment. Or it could have been, hey, did this before, liked it, tried it again. We don't know what happened. But we do know is that when Moses wrote about this particular incident, there's not a lot of blame that is put on Noah. 
even though drunkenness is condemned in the scriptures afterwards and it is considered a sin, but at that particular time, there's not a whole lot of blame that is put on Noah. But the Bible says that when his son Ham found him, he didn't have any clothes on. Noah, those of you who have drunk before, he might have gotten a little bit warm. You know what happens when you, you drink, you start getting hot? And um, it looks like he might have just taken off his clothes and he might have fell, fallen asleep. In other words, he just passed out. Just passed out. He just drank so much. There he was in his tent, naked and exposed. Now, nakedness can be a consequence of the sin of drunkenness. Because drunkenness, when you get drunk, you loosen all your inhibitions. All the things that you would never do, all the things that you would never say, uh, the way that you would never act. All of a sudden you drink, and there you are. Somebody who never talked, now you're the life of the party. You can't dance, you have two left feet, all of a sudden you're out there in the middle of the dance floor. Can't sing a lick, there you are on top of the table, screaming out a song. Drunkenness loses our inhibitions, and it causes us to do things that we would normally be ashamed of. When man was sinless, when there was no sin, there was no shame in nakedness. But with the sin came the shame. This is one of the saddest pictures in the word of God because Noah was a prophet of God, a man who was described by God as being righteous. And now he gives way to temptation in his life. Noah failed after having walked with God for years and years and years. The flood happened when Noah was 600 years old. So he had been walking with God for a minimum of 600 years. That's a long time. Most of his life he walked with God. This sin happened in the last one or two hundred years of his life because the Bible says that he lived up to the year 950. So it was in the last one or two hundred years that he made this mistake. But the point that I'm trying to make is that after walking with God for a while, Noah led up. He let his guard down and his spiritual life wasn't the same like it was before the flood. When you start walking with God for a little while, sometimes we let our guard down. Sometimes, I don't got to pray like I used to. I don't got to read. I don't even got to go to church. Who's speaking? You start making decisions on who's speaking. And you let your age in Christianity make those decisions for you. There were a lot of men who made mistakes, bad mistakes, at the end of their life. Moses sinned in the later years of his life by disobeying God, and he wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land because he was disobedient. David sinned in the later years of his life by committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then he killed her husband. Noah fell into this sin because he had neglected his prayer and worship time. He failed to keep up 
a watchful eye against temptation. Sometimes when you've been safe for a while, you think you got it together. You think you know how to handle yourself. You think you know how to say no to temptation. But if you're not praying and you're not reading and you're not taking care of what you're supposed to take care of, believe me, the enemy will come in through a little crack in the door and cause you to be just like Noah, just like Moses, just like David. He will cause you to fall. The Bible doesn't say that Noah was a drunkard. It doesn't even say that he was a habitual drinker. It doesn't even say anything about him ever being drunk. So I think being drunk was a new thing for him. But if he would have been spiritually strong, he would have not caved into the flesh. Noah fell into this sin just because his heart and mind were not where it was supposed to be in the things of God. His neglect of prayer and worship had probably been going on for a little while. And that's how it happens. So there's a little legend that I read. And according to the legend, it says, when Noah entered the ark, he took along a vine. He had been a gardener before he built the ark, and when he settled again on the land after the flood, he planted the vine once more to return to his old occupation. But as he was working in the garden, Satan came up to him and said, if you will let me help you, I can show you how to make grapes grow on the vine tomorrow. That, said Noah, is something worth seeing. So Satan helped Noah plant the vine. Then Satan took a lamb, a lion, a monkey, and a pig and watered the plant with their blood. That is why, after the first glass of wine, one becomes gentle as a lamb. After the second glass of wine, as daring as a lion. After the third glass, you're more likely to make a monkey of yourself. And after the fourth glass of wine, a person becomes drunk and behaves like a pig. Some of you may have gone to your family for Thanksgiving where there was a lot of drinking there. Alcohol is normal in many families when the holidays come. It's like holidays, alcohol. The United States has seen a 25% increase in the amount of alcohol consumed in the last 10 years. It's sad, but alcohol and drunkenness has become a part of our life. The great evil of the sin of drunkenness is that it exposes who you are. All those little secret sins all come out with alcohol. Whatever things you've been hiding, whatever secrets you know, all of a sudden you'll betray anybody when you get a little alcohol. It doesn't, you don't even have to coerce them. Hey, what really happened? Oh, let me tell you. You don't even got to, you know, do anything. When you get a little bit of alcohol, everything comes out. Right? Secrets come out. You bring disgrace upon yourself. And you also bring disgrace upon your family. And it shames you to do the things when you're drunk that you would never, ever, ever do when you're sober. There was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous who once sent this column to Ann Landers. And this is from his own personal 
perspective as an alcoholic. He said, I drank for happiness and became unhappy. I drank for joy and became miserable. I drank for sociability and became argumentative. I drank for sophistication and became obnoxious. I drank for friendship and made enemies. I drank for sleep and awakened without rest. I drank for strength and felt weak. I drank medicinally and acquired health problems. I drank for relaxation and got the shakes. I drank for bravery and became afraid. I drank for confidence and became doubtful. I drank to make conversation easier and slurred my speech. I drank to feel heavenly and ended up feeling like hell. I drank to forget and was forever haunted. I drank for freedom and became a slave. I drank to erase problems and saw them multiply. I drank to cope with life and invited death. Those are the maladies, or those are the things that happen to drunkards and alcoholics and to those who drink. But to get past that, just to exactly what Noah's son did, Ham, that's very hard to know also. The Bible says that when Ham saw his father Noah, the word saw in the Hebrew means to see, to look at, to perceive, to consider, to gaze. One commentator said that this gives the idea of gazing with satisfaction. This is his son looking at his father without clothes on. There are some Bible scholars who say that under the law, to see nakedness means that there was a sexual act or maybe homosexual activity that might have taken place. We don't know. Nobody knows. It is not there. I'm not going to read into something that is not there. I'm just trying to give you the definition of what the word is. But what we do know is that Ham saw his father in an exposed condition. And there is some form, I don't know what form, but there is some form of sexual perversion, whether a thought or whether the act. Something happened. Most scholars believe that the sin of Ham was sexual perversion because the nations of Canaan, Canaan was his son. And if you ever read the Bible or you ever do any kind of history, Canaan was known, the Canaanites were known to be the most sexually perverted, morally depraved, and bloodthirsty people of all ancient history. They were the absolute worst. So it's a matter of historical record that the Canaanites were notoriously deviant in their sexual behavior. Everywhere archaeologists have ever dug and discovered around Canaan, they've always found fertility symbols. And those fertility symbols, the way that this book said it, would make pornography dealers today look like beginners. 
That's how depraved it was. You have to understand something. This was a whole nation that was depraved. Not a few people, nation. A whole nation of people that was perverted. Shem, Ham, and Japheth grew up in this kind of a preferred, perverted generation. That's why the flood took place. God had had enough. He said, I can't handle this. That's what was happening. There was so much perversion. And Noah and his family were like a light in the middle of darkness. That's why God calls him righteous. In this whole sea of perversion, there was Noah and his family. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, no, that Ham, his son, partook in the perversion of his day, but we can see that it affected him. It was inside of him because he took his father's nakedness so lightly. It was no big thing for him to see. And it seemed to start with just a look. Does it hurt to just take a look? Just a look, I just wanna see. I've never seen this before. I just wanna see this magazine. I, I just wanna look at this book of pictures. I just wanna look at that movie. I just wanna just take a peek. I've never seen it before. Does it hurt to take a look? Yeah, it does. There's an old song that says, just one look, that's all it took. Just one look. Because today there are movies that are sexually explicit and they should shock you, but they don't. They don't shock you because you've seen so much. You have seen so much perversion already that things in movies, things in TV don't even shock you anymore. You just watch them. You, sh you should turn off the TV. You should get up out of that movie and walk out. You should turn off the internet. You should do all of that stuff, but there you are, glued. Can't take your eyes off of it. Television and movies have desensitized us to nakedness and perversion. There is nothing that is not advertised. Even products that I considered private are now being advertised in commercials. It's like, I didn't even, you know, how do they do that? How do they get all of this stuff on TV? Four, five, six, eight, ten-year-olds are now learning about stuff that I didn't find out until after I was married. How does that happen? Because there's so much perversion in a society that there's nothing private anymore. There's no sense of decency in our society today. Some of you are thinking, what's the big deal with the fact that Noah was drunk and he was naked? He was in his tent. He was in his room. He wasn't out there walking around. He wasn't out there flaunting. So he got drunk. He was in his tent. He didn't hurt anybody. Sometimes we're more surprised at the fact that Shem and Japheth, his other two sons, were so careful not to look at the nakedness of their father than we are at the nakedness of Noah. Because that doesn't even shock us anymore. It's like, no big thing. What? People do that all the time. 
There is no shame and there is no shock at the report of Noah in his tent. Sexual and moral indecency has been portrayed so much over the movies and over the TV that we just don't get it anymore. We're not bothered by Noah's nakedness because there's corruption that has affected us so deep that we're just not surprised anymore. But if the condemnation of God fell on Ham's actions just because he looked, he got cursed. How much does that tell us about how God feels about perversion? How does God feel about nakedness? How does God feel about moral purity? There was a curse that was put on a whole nation. God is serious about this stuff. You don't play. God forgive us for being beyond the point of being able to be shocked and being able to be shamed. There are the sins of the Canaanites that was so bad that we need to relearn how to have moral purity and how to run from sin. Now most of us think of godliness in terms of sin that we commit or we don't commit. But I want to let you know something, that one of the tests of our true Christian character is our response to the sins of others. Sometimes when somebody falls or somebody commits a sin, we want to know. Give me all the details. Tell me everything. Don't leave nothing out. Just like Ham seemed to be pleased by his father's sin, wanting to know everything, that's sometimes what we do. How are we supposed to respond? Well, 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. There is a principle of privacy that Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.12. It says, for it is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. There, is, there should be a shame that comes in our lives when we want to know all the little details. There should be something that we need to understand that violates God's word when we want to know what really happened. Don't tell me what everybody else knows. I want to know what really happened. That's why Paul says it's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. Whatever they've done in secret, you don't got to know. What are you going to do about it if you do know? Be like Ham and say, ah, I knew it. I knew it. Paul is saying that the sins of others should not be analyzed and it should not be dissected. We shouldn't explore them, nor should we share what we know with others. See, that's what Ham did. Ham saw his father naked, didn't do anything about it, but went to go tell his brothers, guess what? Dad's nude. Didn't take the opportunity to cover him. 
didn't take the opportunity to do something about it, but just wanted to go talk about it. I, I knew it was. <laughs> A lot is said about the consequences, but little is said of the circumstances. This is what we need to learn. The little bit you know of the circumstance, that's enough because the consequences are always greater than the circumstance. In Ephesians 4.11, it says we are supposed to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. This is not to be done by dwelling on darkness, but by living as lights shining in the midst of darkness. In Galatians 6.1, it says we're taught to restore the one who has fallen into sin. But Paul emphasizes the attitude of the mature who wants to take on this obligation. You want to help somebody? You want to restore them? You want to make sure that they get back on their feet? That's a great thing to do. You, number one, you better be mature enough to do it. And number two, you better be sure that, that whatever they fell with is not your own weakness. Because it's, if, you're, if it's your weakness too, then you're going to be liable to make the same mistake. Sometimes we know somebody fell, and that's our weakness too, and we gravitate to them. Peter tells us that sin is best dealt with when it's known by the fewest amount of people. Now, I'm not talking about a cover-up. I'm not talking about Enron. I'm not talking about the way the Catholic Church has covered up. I'm not talking about Watergate. I'm not talking about any of that. That's a cover-up. That's when you want to keep illegal actions from going public. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what Paul wrote about when he says that we try to keep the sin at the smallest scale. The least amount of people that need to know, need to know. Need to know. Turn to your neighbor and say, need to know. There is a, a, a military term. And you cannot get information if you are not in that ranking. If you're a buck private and a corporal comes or a sergeant or a general, you know, and you ask a question, they'll look at you and they go, this is a need to know basis. You are not of this rank. It's like, you know, don't be asking questions out of your rank. You're a buck private. Stay a buck private. Learn everything about a buck private. But sometimes the privates want to know what's happening with the generals. Not because they're going to do anything about it. They just want to know just because they want to know. This is a need-to-know basis. If you need to know, you'll be one of the ones to know. If you don't need to know, guess what? You're not on the list. You're not going to know. And it's okay because of the fact that you are here to help restore people. You're not here to help put them down. You're not here to step on them. You're not here to talk about them. You're here to uplift them. You're here to encourage them. You're here to push them on. And we need to get out of this. I want to know. I want to know. Need to know basis. So from now on, if you ask a question, it's going to be told to you. It's a need to know basis. If you need to know, you'll know. We try to keep the sin at the smallest scale, and there's a reason for that. Because those that have fallen and those that are guilty can find forgiveness and restoration. 
We don't want to bring more humiliation upon a person than is necessary. When if you have everybody know, it sure is hard. But if you have a group of people that know and they're encouraging and they're right behind them or her and they're trying to, you know, get this going, it's going to be okay. Not everybody has to know. This is not a, a free-for-all with all the information of all the little juicy tidbits. In the morning, when Noah woke up from his drunkenness, he knew what happened. We don't know how he found out, but I think he might. Sometimes you're drunk enough where you kind of know what's happening, but you really don't care. But he might have found out, and maybe, maybe he didn't know. Maybe he was just so passed out, he didn't know how he got something over his body. But I'm sure once he walked out of his tent, his son made sure everybody knew. If he would run out and go tell his brothers, why wouldn't he go tell everybody else? And that's what you have to be careful of. Be careful who you talk to. Be careful who you tell things to. So what did Ham do when he saw his father? He came across his father as being naked and he dishonored his father. This was a disrespect. He saw his father's failure and then what he did is he left him in that condition and he went outside to go tell other people. Ham saw his father naked and deliberately, the Bible says deliberately, stood there looking at his father. Why? It was almost like he was getting some kind of satisfaction out of this thing. He was pleased to see his father in a state of drunkenness, in a state of shame, in a state of dishonor. Somehow, someway, there had to have been some animosity between him and his father. And that's why he went out to go tell his brothers about his father's drunkenness and his father's nakedness. The word told here means that he told them with delight. He wasn't like, guess what? Oh, you know. No, he was out there and he was happy, delightful. He actually got joy and satisfaction in telling them. Because he was able to ridicule and mock his father's behavior. Dishonoring parents has always been a serious sin in the eyes of God. Deuteronomy 27.16 says, Cursed is anyone who dishonors their father or mother. Leviticus 29, 20 verse 9 says, Anyone who dishonors or speaks disrespectfully of their father or mother must be put to death because such a person is guilty of a capital offense. Proverbs 23:22 says, listen to your father who gave you life and don't despise your mother when she is old. Ham had turned away from the faith of his father. In the core of his being, even though he was drunk, Noah was a very godly man, even though he was drunk. We don't know how he got there, like I said. Noah had been chosen and used by God in a great way, and he was the, what the Bible says in 2 Peter 2.5, a true preacher of righteousness. Now Ham, if his heart had been right with God, he would not have shown his father so much dishonor. He wouldn't have shown him disrespect because this was a man of God. 
didn't matter if he made a mistake. He was still a man of God. You do not dishonor, you do not ridicule, and you do not scorn people, especially those that God has used in the past. If God has used someone in your life and they are no longer where they should be, don't you dare ridicule them because God used them in your life. Don't you dare put them down because God used them in your life at one point in time. The sin of Ham was serious and tragic. Just how serious is the night and day of Shem and Japheth, his other two brothers. They showed so much honor and so much respect for their father, totally opposite of Ham. They showed the greatest respect. They controlled themselves, and they didn't join in when Ham was mocking their father. They didn't join in when he was making fun of him. What they did is they got a cloak, and both of them walked backwards. They didn't even turn their head didn't even bother to glance, didn't even take a look, didn't want to allow themselves to dishonor their father. They walked backwards, threw the blanket on him, and walked out. They could have taken a part of demeaning him. They could have taken a part of disrespecting him. But instead, what they did is they loved their father enough to cover up his embarrassment, to cover up what he had done. Because what does love do? Love covers sins. The information says that Ham was not supposed to look at his father's nakedness, but because he did, he did it because his heart was not right with God. Because men who looked on other naked men were considered sinful and possibly homosexuals. Ham did not only look at his father's nakedness, but he wanted to talk about it. What happens when you fall into sin? Do you want to talk about it? When you see something you shouldn't see, who do you tell? Who are the first people that you tell? Do you tell the people who could do something about it, or do you tell people just because... You just want them to know. Shem and Japheth represent 1 Peter 4.8 where that love covers a multitude of sins because they covered their father. But what happened is when Noah woke up, this is what's really, really something. When Noah woke up and learned what had happened to him, learned that he had gotten drunk, learned that he was naked, learned what his son Ham did, learned what his sons Shem and Japheth did, what he did is he puts a curse on Canaan. Canaan was the fourth son of Ham. Why didn't he put the curse on Ham? Why did he put the curse on Canaan, his fourth son? And I remember when I was reading this, I was like, why, why would he do that? Noah didn't put a curse on his grandson just to put a curse on his grandson. There was a reason. Noah knew that sexual perversion is always connected to influence. Influence. You do not go down that route unless you've been influenced in some way, shape, or form. Noah knew his own son's tolerance of perversion. Noah knew his son's 
acceptance of it because he looked at him. No one knew his son. And because he knew his son, he knew out of all of his sons, that one is the one that is going to break out in perversion, Canaan. He was, he was guided by divine wisdom. And he selected the one out of Ham's four sons where perversion would find an outlet. And so the curse was put on Canaan. I want you to know something today. The Bible understands us better than we do ourselves. The one area that we fail to understand is there is a link between parents and children. The effect of one generation upon the next generation. The character of the father is reflected in the son. The character of the mother is reflected in the daughter. The Bible says that it is not what is outside of a man that defiles him, but what is inside his heart. So the words of Noah have a prophecy that Canaan, his son, will reflect the moral flaws of his father. And the Canaanites would be the absolute worst society this world has ever, ever known. Because of the sinfulness of the Canaanites, because of the curse that was put upon them, their destiny, if you read anything about the Canaanites, you'll find out everything that Noah said was going to happen, happened. But the curse that was placed on Canaan shows how serious his father's sin was. It wasn't a little thing for his father to come in and look at his nakedness. It wasn't a little thing for him to go out and start talking about it. It wasn't a little thing for him to look. It wasn't a little thing. It was a big thing. And that's why you and I need to understand today that it's the look, that it's the time you take to look at the movie, to look at the program, to look at those pictures, to look at things that you're not supposed to look at. Those are the things that bring depravity and corruption into our life. Because of the curse, Noah told him, you, Canaan, will now be a servant to all of your brothers. You are the servant of all servants. You are the lowest of all lows. Because you had corruption in your life. You will no longer be a blessing, but you will bring a curse. You will be enslaved. But then he told Shem that you are to be a father to a people whose God is to be blessed. That Shem was the lineage of where Christ was going to come from. That's where our Savior was going to come from. Not from Ham. Could have but he blew it. So it came from Shem. That meant that his lineage was going to be a blessing. We are sons and daughters of Noah and Shem. Shem was to be blessed. Then the same thing happened with Japheth. Japheth was going to be enlarged by God. His territory, his prosperity was going to be enlarged. All the blessings came to Shem and Japheth because they did what was right. Not every person who does what 
Ham does is going to get that kind of a curse. But I would tell you, I don't think it's worth the chance. I don't think it's worth it to take a look on the internet, on the pornographic sites. I don't think it's worth it to buy a book, a magazine, just for the articles. Give me a break. I don't think it's worth it to sit in a movie and watch scene after scene. I don't think it's worth it to push aside the blessing and to open yourself up to depravity. So what are some of the lessons that we can learn from this passage of scripture? Number one, that even godly men and women can fall into temptation. Doesn't matter who you are. Galatians 6.1 says, you better be careful if you think you're strong, lest you fall. Don't ever walk around thinking, I got it all together. Because if it could happen to Noah, it could happen to anybody. Secondly, if you find out that somebody has sinned, make sure you follow God's word and don't do a cover-up of the sin, but then don't broadcast it either. Take it to the people that it needs to be taken to and leave it there and be done. Third, don't fall into temptation with alcohol or you'll end up like a lamb, a lion, a monkey, and a pig. Number four, don't dishonor your parents because with dishonoring comes a curse. And number five, for those of you who are parents, what are you passing down to your children? What is the influence in their lives that they're going to live out that they learned from you. Stand with me this morning. This was not an easy passage of scripture to expound on, but I believe that God's word is God's word. It covers the good, the bad, and definitely the ugly. It covers life, at its best and it covers it at its worst and if there's ever a time that I believe that was almost this is a really good time it's right now for us to talk about this because this is the time when families start getting together and just take a drink what's one drink you can't just sit here and not have a drink you're gonna spoil everybody's fun you're going to spoil it. Come on, just be a part of the family. You're going to go out and see some movies. You've got to have enough guts to get up and walk out. I don't care if you paid $10.50. What's $10.50? What's $11? What's $20? If that stuff is in your head and it won't get out. If that stuff keeps you up at night and it won't let you sleep. What is it worth? $20? Walk out anyway. Turn off that computer. Don't let someone else's sin become a delight to you to the point where you go around telling everybody because it makes you look good and them look small. Actually, it's vice versa. If you pass it on, it makes you look small. Those of you who are younger, 
I know that I fell into this category. I dishonored my parents a lot when I was young. But when I learned of this scripture, I sure changed because I did not want to have a curse on my life. I changed. I began to bring honor to my mom. I bad-mouthed her. I talked bad about her pretty much all through my teenage years. But God changed my heart. And I began to see things differently. And I began to bring her honor. And because of that, I feel that I'm blessed today because of that. And then lastly, I'm very careful of how I influence my children. I know they're going to pick up bad habits from me. I know it. But I surely don't want those bad habits to be the things that are going to cause them to be morally impure or morally depraved or morally corrupt. But in order for them not to have that, it's got to start with me. It's got to start with me. And this was a hard passage of scripture to, to preach on, but I know that it hit some of you. I don't know where it hit because there was a whole lot of different issues. But I do know that there are issues that need to be taken care of today at this altar. And as they continue to play and sing, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to open up the altars for you this morning just to come, just to say, you know what, God, you know me. You know who I am. You know what I am. You know what I need. You know how I need to change. To the glory of the you mm-hmm. 